Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes for the week ending September 11th, 2020. Uh, this is a solemn day. Obviously, I want to kick it off. I tried to think of words to describe today, uh, but I think Steven Mnuchin actually put it best this morning. He said, we will never forget the victims, families, and first responders of 9-11, and we will always honor them and remember their sacrifices. Um, so uh, at, the, at the New York Stock Exchange, there was a moment of silence at the, at the exchanges and at the sites of the tragedies. So um, just thought we'd start on that note. And this is the 47th video cast and 37th podcast. So as we always do, we're gonna kick it off with the media spots. And yesterday I was on the Clayman countdown on Fox Business with Liz Clayman and went through a few important points that I wanna cover on this uh, edition. And she asked me about the markets and the procedural vote in the Senate failed for the stimulus deal, which we've said for a number of weeks we didn't think was gonna happen prior to the stopgap at the end of the month. Um, but the point that I made on this short segment, and for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, you can go to hedgefundtips.com and click on Featured On and find all of the videos so you can get more granular detail. Because in these spots, you know, it's one or five minutes, or you know, in uh, one case this week, 30 minutes of content, but the preparation that goes into it and the research to have the salient points, you get a lot of value in a very short period of time. Um, but uh, so I, I, I went in with Liz about it being a, a bifurcated market. And on Wednesday, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine was delayed because one patient had a spinal type of issue. I think it was meningitis. And they're trying to parse whether it was related to the vaccine or if it was separate. There had been another patient, it turned out to be MS, which was unrelated. But the bottom line was on Wednesday, when the article was written, uh, article of the week was written, um, you saw tech bounced. So uh, what I said, my opening line to Liz was, as you saw yesterday, the vaccine was delayed and cyclicals were filleted. <laughs> so we're getting we're back into that bifurcation when it looks like the uh, vaccine or treatments are going to be delayed and we're going to be in a low growth, slower growth environment. Tech outperforms. Why? Because managers have to bid up and pay up for those very few small pockets where growth is possible in a low economic growth environment. Um, and I followed that up with the cyclicals. This was a huge opportunity to get your exposure to cyclicals as we inch toward a vaccine because these economically sensitive names are gonna rip higher uh, once we're, we're in sight of that and the world gets back to normal. So whether it's gonna be October or November, we don't know, or even December, we're gonna talk a bit about it on this call. The other thing I discussed with Liz, if you go back through all of my media on the Featured On, um, there was one famous article on Market Watch, the Spanish flu, cuckoo, cachoo. You can search here when we put out an article on March 19th, uh, comparing it to the Spanish flu where the Dow dropped 33%. 
and um, um, and that was it. And then it made new highs over the next year and a half. It was basically four days before the bottom. But also in late March and early April, you'll see some of my Fox business where we were talking about um, the pain trade. And the pain trade is what's going to happen next in the market that's going to cause the most pain to the most amount of people. And in late March and early April, we were saying the pain trade is up because everybody, 100% of people, were expecting well, not 100%, obviously, but you know, a very high percentage of people were expecting a retest of the lows. And when everyone's looking for the same thing, you don't get it. And the pain trade was up, and that proved to be true. So where's the pain trade now? And I covered this with Liz. The pain trade now, now remember, this was uh, Thursday, so we were coming off that huge tech bounce on Wednesday when the vaccine was delayed. Everyone's like, okay, let's buy tech again. And that's also the nature of the article, never gonna give you up with Barry White, which we're gonna go into. But what I told Liz was the pain trade is now a bit lower for tech and SaaS software as a service, those pockets of the market that have gotten excessively overvalued, despite the falls of 16%, now it's more on Apple, um, despite the falls of 23% on Zillow and a third on Tesla, uh, and Zoom, etc. Uh, not Zillow, uh, Zoom. Um, because so the pain trade is a little lower for tech uh, because everyone everyone's overweight. So they want to, it to be a dip buy, but if you look at the weights of the S and P, and we've discussed this for ma many many episodes, um, what will cause max pain and really the heaviest weight that everyone's overexposed to is Apple, is if that continues to creep lower. And I said that the pain trade would be a bit lower uh, for tech. And if you look at the historic data, the last five times that the NASDAQ corrected 10% in a week, there was a, a, a meaningful bit of um, more downside uh, for tech before that stabilized. On the flip side, which was also a really key point, let's take the worst case extreme which i don't believe this is and it's actually it's not is uh the 2000 tech wreck so when you had amazon drop 95 percent that's not happening now uh, maybe it'll happen in some some of these companies with no earnings like you saw tilray a few years ago and now you're seeing some of these uh different ev companies etc but uh, on the whole, I don't think so. I think the earnings power is supportive and I, and I think we'll correct a bit more for tech, uh, probably longer than people expect for that sector and subsector. Uh, but, and most people don't know this, if you bought an equal weight S&P 500 index or ETF if they had it in 2000, while some of these tech stocks and the NASDAQ cor uh, correcting 80 some odd percent, you would be up 25% in the next 12 months if you bought an equal weight S&P 500 uh, in March of 2000. So it just goes to show you these stocks have become overly concentrated. You know, the FANG plus now a number of these SaaS and a few EV companies, uh, high flyers with no earnings and huge multiples. Um, and to take that excess out of the market, you're going to see a rotation, which we've been talking about, into cyclicals, and we're going to we're going to dig into that a little bit more. But that's a mind-blowing statistic that 
while tech was literally having a depression, 80% drop in the NASDAQ, you know, 90, 95% in some major names like Amazon, uh, if you had just bought an equal weight, meaning you weren't concentrated in those names that have run up, those handful of names like we have today, um, and you were just equal across the 500 stocks, you would have been up 25% over the next year. Why? Because you would have had exposure to value in cyclicals uh, versus being stuck in what had worked in the rear view mirror versus what was gonna work moving forward. Um, the other point that I wanted to make um, was that, well, not only are the signals mixed, you know, the AAII sentiment survey results of individual investors was down to 23% bullish this week that historically is a buy signal but at the same time the national association of active investment managers uh was at a 95 percent equity exposure which means they were all in chasing like lemon lemmings and they got slaughtered so um now the move into cyclicals the bifurcated market that i talked about uh where tech probably has a bit more to go and money's going to rotate into cyclicals um, and what we're focused on is, as, as we've uh, talked about, is banks, uh, defense stocks, and um, uh, certain pockets of energy. Um, that is consistent with the earnings expectations for 2021. So it's not just some like thesis because it's happened every single recession before that cyclicals lead when GDP is growing at its fastest off of a low base, which we're gonna grow six, six and a half percent GDP next year uh, off of a low base and off of 25% increase in money supply in the last six months. About a fourth of that usually translates into the real economy. But just look at the earnings expectations, uh, consensus earnings, energies to have the highest earnings growth. I, I could never figure out why there were no numbers here for the last few weeks. The reason there are no numbers is because you know energy had negative earnings this year, so there's nothing to percentage to go up. But they're going to have the highest earnings growth. <coughs> Industrial is going to be number two. Uh, consumer discretionary number three. Financials number four. Financials are expected to grow 31.6% earnings growth in 2021. Materials 29%. And the S&P 500, 26.2%. That's all great. What's tech going to do? Tech is going to grow at half the pace of the S&P 500 at 13.7% earnings growth. So when we talk about, you know, rotation out of overvalued uh, pockets of tech and growth into value and cyclicals, it's not just, you know, finger in the wind, hoping for the best. It's it's also that's how earnings are set up. So a lot of the growth was pulled forward for, for many of these tech companies, benefited from the, from the uh, corona crisis. And um, as we gallop out of this, uh, we, we are going to see these sectors that also have earnings that are going to exceed the earnings growth of the S&P 500 outperform on a relative basis, uh, both because that's what happens in, in uh, post-recession recovery and two, the earnings power supports it. So uh, that was the Clayman countdown. First of all, I wanna thank Ellie Terrett for inviting me on the show and Liz Clayman for having me on her show again. I enjoy that very much. Um, thanks to Ellie and Liz. Next, we were on CGTN on Wednesday uh, with Rochelle Akufo, and I want to thank Stephanie Savage for inviting me on that show. 
And this was a great show because this is focused on China. And the reason China is so important to focus on is because uh, their peak cases came in mid-February in their epicenter of Wuhan. Our peak cases came two months later in our epicenter of the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, in mid-April. And uh, we covered a lot of points. I was on to talk about the CPI and PPI, the inflation numbers that were reported that day. Uh, both were reported in line. Their CPI was up 2.4%, uh, but that was largely attributable to uh, food prices are up 11.2% year on year. And that's because they've had flooding in, uh, in June in the Yangtze River, which accounts for 50% of their ag production was wiped out. And uh, their shipping and transport, not only for ag, but also for pigs and pork. And they're further compounded problems by the fact that they had the swine flu last year with their uh, you know, pig herd. I, herd is for cattle, but I, I'll just call it a herd. Pig herd. Um, so they lost a million pigs. And so it's taking time to rebuild that. That's why you saw lean hog futures just go through the roof recently. Uh, they're starting to rip because of China demand. And, um, and that's actually also helping to bring China's phase one agreed purchases. Remember, over two years, they've got to uh, buy 200 billion more than they bought off the 2017 baseline. And they were falling behind with coronavirus, uh, COVID, and they're now catching up, certainly on the ag side, because they have huge demand. As a matter of fact, yesterday, they had their highest soybean purchase, 664,000 tons, uh, was the highest since July. And um, uh, so, so that, that was a key thing. X food, their inflation is modest, but they are seeing 7.2% inflation in uh, air travel price. This is critically important, and I think it's the most important data point of the week. Uh, they had 86% of pre-pandemic domestic flight traffic in August in China. Remember, we're two months behind them. And uh, they're expected to do 100% in September of domestic air travel. Uh, you know, I don't know that we'll be at 100% three months from now, but um, these were amazing numbers. Right now, we actually got up to 40%, which we'll cover a little bit more. But very exciting to see. They don't have a vaccine yet. They're just, you know, doing what we're doing, wearing masks, going about their business, and things are getting back to normal. And they'll get even better after we get a vaccine. Um, we went a lot into also with regards to the PPI, demand for metals. You're seeing it in copper prices. Uh, this is all created by the stimulus, the construction and infrastructures through the roof. And uh, actually, property starts was a key point uh, that I covered in that um, uh, it, they're running at a rate that they could wind up having positive year-on-year -year comps in 2020. They had such a strong summer. If that, if that persists to the end of the year, they'll be positive year-on-year -year for property starts. We've talked in recent weeks about uh, the investment in railroads. They spend $120 billion a year relative to the U.S., 30 billion relative to the UK, 8 billion. So their stimulus is going into long-term investments where they're gonna get a return. 
Uh, wish we could get something like that done. Hopefully uh, uh, next year after the elections, they'll come together and finally do a big, big uh, infrastructure package. Uh, their exports are up 9.5%, which is good because it shows the Europe and the U.S. are recovering and the demand is there, global pent-up demand. And um, and that was, that was basically it. You can listen to that. A lot of great data. Thank you to Rochelle and to Stephanie for having me on that. And then finally, on last night, I was on uh, CGT on a different show called The Heat, uh, the Heat is hosted by Anand Naidu, and I want to thank Zaina Al-Shaib for inviting me on. This was a half-hour show. Uh, it was a panel all about China, and I got to say, you know, my, my panelists were pretty uh, downbeat on the economy, and I shared some of these numbers about the recovery and the travel and the demand and everything else. So you definitely want to check into that. Uh, the one thing that I liked, uh, the first segment was, uh, so it goes a whole half hour and then like they just keep rotating and talking back and forth. So each person speaks like three or four times over the half hour. <coughs> and they started off with this China International Fair for Trade and Services. 22,000 companies and organizations participated. All the foreigners were mostly offline. I, I'm sorry, online. Uh, so they were, you know, zooming in uh, um, remotely. But there were, you know, the domestic attendees for the first time since the crisis all attended in person. So it was business as normal. And I think that was symbolic that the world is getting back to normal. Several thousand people. Xi Jinping talked about win-win trade and protecting intellectual property, etc. But this was a, a conference for the services sector, which is 50% of China's GDP. And uh, the other thing that I brought up, uh, which was interesting, Fitch was out recently. They've, they've not only upgraded the U, uh, China's GDP to plus 2.7% this year, they upgraded the U.S. to negative uh, 4.6. Consensus has been about negative, well, it was negative 8 from the IMF in June. They've always been, off, you know... Uh, overly conservative I won't say uh, anyway so uh, US is now at negative 4.6 and as I said we're gonna springboard to plus 6.5 next year at least I think uh, uh, we're gonna just rip higher and while the EU is down negative 9 emerging markets negative 5.7 and India negative 10.5 uh, they've had trouble so next year if the US does 6.5 China's projected to do 7.6 we're catching up on their growth rates pretty, pretty quickly. They're slowing and we're rising. This could be uh, um, very interesting moving forward. Um, and the other thing that uh, we talked about was manufacturing. You know, a couple of the panelists were saying that it has to be fair. And I talked about the NYSE uh, listing requirements, which, which basically the administration saying, if you want to list in the U.S., you have to follow the auditing standards that not only U.S. companies have to follow to list and access our capital markets, but for other foreign companies have to follow. Uh, so why, you know, why would it be fair if only one country doesn't have to follow it? So it's reciprocal in that way. Number two, they brought up this issue. You know, Donald Trump, talk, uh, President Trump, talked about um, decoupling. On Monday, you know, wanting to bring manufacturing back, wanting to become a manufacturing superpower, wanting to create 10 million jobs. And, you know, I, I made the analogy, and I think this is very important, that uh, 
um, you know, saying you could compare manufacturing independence to energy independence. Just because we are now energy independent does not mean that we don't do business with the Middle East. We still import oil from the Middle East. We just don't want to have to rely on the Middle East for our, our energy. And it's the same thing with the manufacturing. President Trump still wants to do tons of business, I'm sure, with China. He just doesn't want to rely on China and their supply chains or any other country for that matter. And um, his idea is to bring back, you know, as many of the manufacturing jobs as he can. And, you know, it'll probably be the higher end, um, uh, you know, knowledge, knowledge sensitive uh, type of manufacturing. And, but, you know, it'll still be a free way to do tremendous amounts of business, particularly if the phase one continues to follow through and the relationship stays strong. So um, a lot of positive things in that. But really, I wanted to just emphasize the data. So um, um, the, you know, the travel, the GDP revisions, the recovery, etc. So that's all good news. Next, I want to shift gears to <coughs> Barron's has just been putting out some great articles on banks and cyclicals. And the thing that I really love about Barron's is that they're not afraid to go against the grain and put things out there before the rest of the world sees it. And obviously, you know, we've been very, um, you know, uh, building, you know, large positions in banks, etc. Uh, you know, since the crash in March and, um, you know, they, they've got it right. So I, I'm just going to start, you know, in my view, uh, Carlton English has just put out a tremendous number of phenomenal articles. I'm going to start with um, Al Root, though, because she refers to his article in one of her notes. And this was on July 20th when he talked about Cecil. And I did a segment for CNBC London. Um, you could actually just Google it, Tom Hayes, CNBC London. It should come up about Cecil in, uh, I think, July 15th. But he actually breaks it down because, um, okay, so for the most recent earnings season, the big four banks earned just $5 billion in second quarter pre-tax pre income compared with roughly $34 billion in second quarter of 2019. That's a huge negative swing. However, the loan loss provisions from Cecil which it was an accounting change that just happened to come at the worst time in history, just like uh, when they did the, uh, the FAS change in Q1 2007 that caused the financial crisis, uh, FAS 157, I think it was, uh, mark to market. Anyway, so this came at the exact worst time. If you strip away, so effectively, every time they write a loan, they were now required as of this most recent quarter to account for the worst possible scenario at the time of making the loan for their entire book of loans. So they had to like over, more than over reserve more than they ever have, even coming out of the great financial crisis, much more than that. And mind you, this is not a balance sheet recession. This is a different story. So if you strip away the accounting change, uh, you add back um, about $23 billion. So X in accounting change, uh, 
this most recent quarter, which is the worst part of this COVID crisis, the four big banks would have earned 28 billion pre-tax versus 34 billion pre-tax the year before. Now that makes sense, it would be down $6 billion. It doesn't make sense that it would be down 29, 29 billion, uh, 34 to, 20, to, to five is, is 29 uh, billion, but that's just a paper accounting change that they had to comply with with Cecil. So Al and certainly uh, Carlton were well ahead of the curve, certainly from reporting and media uh, on this issue, which is of paramount importance because all of that over-reserving is gonna come back as income in coming quarters and coming years. So banks are uh, excessively undervalued on that basis because the earnings power is gonna be much greater than anticipated as those reserves roll off and become income in future quarters. And the entire hit was taken all at once. So they, they kitchen synced it in the most recent quarter. Um, on the flip side, the way to look at it is apples to apples, the fact that they're pre-tax income only came down $6 billion from the previous year after shutting down the world for two months is just testament to what how well positioned they are moving forward. So that was that. Uh, then, and I've, I've been uh, putting out a lot of Carlton's articles, but I just want to cover two because she uh, put them out recently. This one was updated uh, two or three days ago. It's time to get bullish on bank stocks. Here's why. Listen, I mean, as an investor, this is what you're paid to do. You, you get paid for seeing things before other people do, you know, or uh, I put out a Buffett quote today, buying quality merchandise when it's on sale, etc. cetera. Um, but as a reporter, to have the courage to put something like this out when no one else in the world is in agreement with you besides you know, a handful of value managers that this is what they do for a living and they catch things early and, and then, you know, by the time everyone else catches on, things are double. Uh, this is just phenomenal reporting and very insightful. So this is some, this is my go-to person on bank reporting now. Uh, she's phenomenal and you should definitely get Barron's uh, and, and, uh, and, and read her articles because they're very timely. And I think, I mean, I'm not a reporter, but I think it takes a tremendous amount of courage to be putting out these type of articles um, uh, factually based. This is not her opinion, but she's actually on top of the most important issues. And she's talking about Cecil in great detail on this article, it's time to get bullish on bank stocks, here's why, <coughs> from September 8th. And she goes into uh, the uh, 12 of the largest banks set aside 72 billion in loan loss reserves, more than doubling the reserves set aside at the end of 2019. Um, and she just goes into dramatic detail. She goes into uh, the price to tangible book, year to date change, and some of the catalysts that, that can move forward. Uh, later in, today, she just put out I guess at 1.08 p.m., an article on Wells Fargo, which is my favorite. And the interesting thing about Wells Fargo, you know, number one is the elephant seller, Todd and Ted over at Berkshire, uh, have sold out of uh, Wells Fargo to buy Snowflake, um, if you caught that. And so the elephant seller is gone. The interesting thing is Munger still has it as 40% of his portfolio in his, uh, in his vehicle. 
and he hasn't changed a thing. We, we went into this last week, but I think this article that Carlton put out today on Wells is great. It cites the upgrade from the U.S. Bancorp analyst um, Martinez, who upgraded the stock today, as well as, so that's two upgrades in two weeks now. Give those people courage, uh, credit for their courage. Rather, uh, last week was Dick Beauvais. This week is um, Martinez over at U.S. Bancorp. And she has a table here, Carlton does, of finding opportunities in the big banks. And she uh, has, it goes in price to tangible book, price to book. And you can see, you know, City and Wells. So Wells, uh, City rather this week, by the way, had the CEO change, uh, will be the first female to run a uh, major money center bank. And that's gonna be very positive. She has huge technical background. She'll be able to cut out a tremendous amount of costs we know that Charlie Scharf at Wells Fargo is going to, you know, they've already announced they're going to cut like uh, um, about $10 billion of costs. So, um, you know, trading at 61% and 63% a book, you know, long term, you, you can see their mean is, is uh, certainly on, in the case of Wells Fargo, it trades between 1 to 1.75. The only other two times that it's gotten down to this level were in 2009 and 1992. And it recovered to book within months, not within years. And book at this stage would be around 40 bucks. And it probably goes at a premium to that. Uh, and then over time, it can start to trade as a premium as everyone gets on board. But that's where the value is. You know, you look at your cities and it's easy to see in this table that Carlton put together. Uh, cities, your wells, uh, Bank of America is trading at a discount to book. Uh, Buffett's been adding to that position. Um, and regions financial and a few of these regional banks so read it because she goes into cecil she goes into a lot of these different banks she goes into the upgrades and my you know my hat is really off to reporters that step out and um and go for it so um let's take a look at uh, a couple of these points she made on wells yeah so bank plans to cut 10 billion in expenses uh, ample room to re reduce costs between uh, through 2022. Uh, Wells Fargo's efficiency ratio for the first half of the year was 71.6, far above peers. So there's room there. Uh, so a lot of positive things that and and the tide is turning now that money is finally coming out of tech. So we've been talking about this trade money coming out and then going into uh, cyclicals and and we've emphasized banks. So here's the trend that started at the beginning of the month. This is well, the most hated stock in the S&P 500, which was Wells Fargo, to the most loved stock in, in, uh, in the S&P 500, which was Apple. Uh, this is a ratio chart, and it just shows that Wells Fargo has been dramatically outperforming in the last 11 days relative to Apple. So that trend should persist. This is a nice inflection moving in the right direction. Obviously, we want to see Wells start to hum. This is the KBE Bank Index to the uh, ETF to the uh, tech ETF. <laughs> Same story, um, relative outperformance. So if I would have told you that at the beginning of September, which I did, by the way, uh, you, you may or may not have believed me. But I guess if you're listening, you did believe me because you came back and it's starting to happen. So that's a good thing. Now, moving on to, uh, not to the article, we're going to do Ask Me Anything first so the first question came in from ben asks hey tom 
Here's a Friday podcast AMA question. I don't trade on margin, but I was wondering how margin calls affect the market. For example, in a downtrending market, will selling increase at 230? Uh, yeah, so if you're interested in what happens midday, there are two times that I, I generally notice weakness. Um, number one is from 11 till 11.30 because you're getting the European closing, so that puts pressure, selling pressure on the US. And number two would be from 2 to 2.30. These are obviously both more pronounced, obviously, in a down market or a really down market, 2 to 2.30, because um, margin calls are generally 2.30 for institutions. So uh, yes, if you're in a negative market and you want to buy the bounce, either wait till you get through uh, 11.30 or wait till you get through 2.30 and then see what goes on after that. Second, um, you said in an April podcast, oh, long time listener, first time caller. Uh, <laughs> actually, uh, Ben's, Ben's asked questions before. But you said in an April podcast that everyone thinks the market's going down again. Retest. Thus, the pain trade is up. You were right. And by the way, uh, uh, Ben gave me that idea to cover on Liz Clayman's show uh, on Thursday. So thanks for that, Ben, for reminding me of what I said in April. And you were right. So thank you for that pat on the back. Uh, even though the CBOE put call ratio is only in the low 80s tonight and retail is still buying lots of calls, doesn't it feel like everyone thinks the market is going down again tomorrow, Friday, or next week, thus the pain trade is up, maybe to last Wednesday's highs, question mark. Okay, so um, anytime a question related to investing or trading has to do with feel, it's uh, probably um, going to lead you in the wrong direction. So we're going to look at some of the indicators that I look at. Let's see, he sent this on Thursday. Okay, so you, no one indicator is going to be the tip-off for things, you know, doing what you think you're, they're going to do. What you need to do is look at a number of things and then weigh uh, both your fundamental view and what the data of certain indicators is telling you. So, you know, um, so you can make an estimate of when it makes sense to start adding risk. Because when volatility picks up, fundamentals go out the window. That's when you start to pay close attention to this. It sounds like Ben is, is more of an intraday, shorter term trader, which is not really what I do. I'm looking to add quality intermediate term things that are on sale during puke outs or get short certain things when they're excess and, and I have reason and catalyst to believe they're going to turn. Um, so, um, and then he said, uh, follow that up. Why wouldn't the big players take the market up to last week's highs to get retail and money managers back in the market before it goes down? Okay. So this is a common mistake. I think that m retail traders think that there's some magical big big boys that all get together in a poker room, uh, big boys and girls, and say, let's take the market up, let's take them, that's not how it works. Um, there's no magical force or group that takes anything up or down. Uh, yeah, I know Kramer wrote the book and you know, hedge funds can manipulate the futures before the open and that kind of thing, but that, that's short-term nonsense. That doesn't matter in terms of making rational decisions to make money over time. So um, 
I think when, as we go through the Barry White article, I'm going to address some of these things and give you some tools that you can um, uh, assess for yourself based on the data what's probabilistically likely to happen, not around feel or not what you think, you know, magical forces are trying to do to the market. It's, it's, it's um, the reason that we knew and we talked about in the last two weeks, the pain trade would be lower for tech was based on the euphoria about getting exposure and the crowding in. So when you get that crowded and that parabolic in the short term, um, the first dip, all of those late buyers are so committed to the idea, they want to believe that they can buy a five or 10% dip and that's it and their, their pain is over. So they hold on and they hope because they were the suckers, the last buyers. That's why we've had continued pain. Like you saw today, Apple, it's just gonna continue to, tech has, has more to work out in the short term. And I think what's interesting about this situation <laughs> is that the indices could actually wind up being generally okay in coming weeks, even if tech continues to get really hurt and some people that plowed into SAS and FANG uh, get really hurt. Uh, because the, the people that have been paying attention and buying those laggard sectors that we all know will be the best performers as the recovery continues and as we get back to normalcy uh, and we get a vaccine, uh, those are going to start to pick up. Now, I think because of the weights that tech was relative to the cyclicals, I think the indices would generally be net modestly negative, but under the surface, they're going to be dramatic crashes in stocks and dramatic rallies in stocks simultaneously. And that's what we need to be paying attention to. I said it last week, you're not going to make your money, quote, calling the market in coming weeks. That's not the game. The game is, what do you think about tech? What do you think about energy? What do you think about banks? What do you think about defense stocks? What do you think about this? And, you know, our, our, our view has been very clear about what we think about these things. And so far that's playing out. It's played out more on the high flyers crashing than it has the cyclicals rallying. But we, we remember, we got a setback with one of the vaccines, but we're going to talk about all the vaccines in the rest of this call. So, Ben, really thoughtful questions Thank you for the acknowledgement. Thank you for the questions. Hope that helps. I'm going to answer more during the rest of this call so that you can get great value. Uh, thanks for sending that in. Good thinking. Uh, now, John asks, um, uh, this is John John also. He's, he's a longtime listener, not a first-time caller. He's the one that owns the, the newspaper group in Ohio. Swing State, by the way. Get those op-eds in. Um, so... First of all, watched you live on CGTN Global Biz. Thanks for the heads up. Uh, thanks for watching. Uh, my question deals with cash to debt ratio. I look at several other fundamentals as well. Notice several securities you bring up, not recommending. And I notice that many have very low cash to debt ratios. I use a minimum of 0.75 as a minimum to consider and prefer 1.5 or higher. With all going on, I figure short-term liquidity is important. Do you agree? And if so, what percentage do you use? Thank you for your consideration. <clears throat> so this is spoken like a true small business owner, and he's thinking very smart about how he has to think about running a business. 
the we're mostly talking on these calls about large you know first of all we're usually talking about the market then we're talking about sectors and then in some cases we're talking about individual large cap stocks and um so i think what he's referring to in financial terms is the quick ratio um and um i think for your small business that's correct but remember it's cash to debt service it's not cash to debt that's important number one number two for the large cap stocks we're dealing in and we're dealing with them on uh, in them on purpose the credit markets are more open than they've ever been open before so they can borrow unlimited and those that i've recommended have either refinanced borrowed or didn't need to borrow uh moving forward and that is always a consideration but that's, uh, I would look more at debt to equity versus uh, quick ratios. Quick ratios is something that you need to pay attention to as a small business owner. And I think your thinking is correct, but as it relates to the strongest 500 companies in, you know, give or take uh, publicly in the world, uh, the capital markets are open and the Fed has made sure of that and they've committed to keeping it open even if they have to buy the debt themselves. So uh, that that's not a major, factor it's more of a factor with the 20 percent of the lower end e p companies there's worry there so uh on the energy you want to be highest up the food chain if you're going to start to play that cyclical trade uh in the short term and then as that sector starts to get bid in coming months then you can go lower on the food chain uh to some of the more risky stuff as, as the capital markets open for them as well so john great question and uh appreciate you being a regular listener so now on to the Barry White, never going to give you up stock market. Um, uh, so we started off with uh, the theme song we chose by Barry White. With the NASDAQ falling, this was as of Wednesday night, what NASDAQ had fallen 11% in a few days. Apple dropped 16%. It's uh, down more than that now. Tesla 35% and Zoom 23%. And we put out the charts. Uh, these were timely. I mean, look at our last two weeks notes. We were calling for, for the, uh, this type of thing. Um, market participants. So again, this was Wednesday when the vac AstraZeneca, the front running vaccine, AstraZeneca Oxford was delayed due to that one patient. Tech got a bounce. And I was talking about uh, market participants behaving like a longing lover as they eyed their favorite tech stocks trading a bit cheaper than they were a week ago. Um, these are all the people that bought late into the wrong thing that had already moved. It came down, all of a sudden it gets a bid and they get right back in like lemmings. So where's the pain trade? It's to just shake them down more. And like I said, I think it's gonna take a few weeks for some of these tech stocks to, uh, to find uh, more solid ground and to take some of the froth and, and uh, um, you know, take some of that out of the market. So, um, okay, so were they right? The people that bought the bounce on Wednesday. They were right if you believe that the vaccine is going to get delayed well past the beginning of the year. Uh, into the first quarter or in the second quarter. And um, and that would create an environment of slow economic growth where tech is going to outperform and managers are left with no choice but to buy those small pockets of growth. Once we get closer and closer to a vaccine, 
um, there becomes many more opportunities to get growth. So banks will start to gallop and you can buy, banks will start to have earnings growth. Like we covered before, they're expected to grow 31% earnings next year relative to the S&P of 26% relative to tech of 13%. That's gonna give managers a lot more options where they can buy growth so they don't have to bid up Zoom to 63 times earnings because it's growing revenues. Um, okay, so, um, okay, so here's where you can review the previous two weeks articles and see the setup that we had laid out. And then, um, so if you believe the vaccine's a long way away, then rebuying on Wednesday was a good bet. I'm more optimistic. My base case is that we're two months behind China's recovery with or without a vaccine. As I showed, you know, they had 86% of domestic air travel last month, 100% this month. It's interesting. People always say to me like, oh, you believe the China data. You know, they, they published some really crappy numbers during their epicenter of COVID, like off the charts, negative, horrible numbers. Not one person tweeted, do you believe the official numbers when they were like negative 40%, negative 80%, you know, I'm not saying, you know, so, you know, just be balanced. If you're going to say that the data is not correct when it's positive, then where are you when the data is really negative and it's published? I, you know, I think, you know, you have to uh, uh, be a little realistic. We wouldn't have the S&P doing what it do does without Asia doing well, without Europe doing well. They, they derive a lot of their earnings from abroad. So, you know, just just be open-minded that, you know, numbers are probably in the ballpark or at least settle out over time in the ballpark of, of what is uh, something that, that you can use in a generalized analysis. Um, now, they're at 86%. They're going to be 100% this month. Uh, we actually bounced up to uh, 40%. So we had 935,000 people travel on September 7th. <laughs> compared to 2.2 million the year before that's the biggest number if you if you look back to the um april period we were down to 87 so we've grown by a factor of 10 uh over the last four months we're two months behind china you know maybe we get up to 75 percent by the end of the year that would be unbelievable um and i know many of you have flown and it's it's totally safe and a great experience etc now um, the other thing to keep in mind, uh, Governor Cuomo opened indoor seating in New York. That's huge. 25%. It's only 25% starts the end of the month. But it's huge because, you know, New York City is a huge center for GDP. And to have people finally starting to come back, even though it's, a you know, need some leadership on top of it, uh, will be a very, very good thing moving forward. So uh, that was nice to see. And it's another sign that things are getting back to normal. Now, when... Short-term volatility spikes, like I said, the fundamentals take a back seat. I look at a number of factors to see where we are in the short term, you may find helpful. First one I did was the equity put call ratio, 10 day moving average. It's a little bit better than the daily spikes. Let's see how it's changed. Um, so, uh, well, let's, let's take a look at the uh, CPC. Let's just look at the put call, which Ben referenced. Okay. So the put call spiked 
puts the call. So fear what had was really high on September 4th. I guess that was before the weekend and it's come down. So a little complacency has kicked in. Um, this could potentially go a bit higher, particularly if you see, you know, tech rollover a bit more. You could see that, you know, the puts start to get on as aggressively as the calls were getting on before we rolled over. Uh, next is the CBOE skew index. This is basically a measure of, and by the way, uh, next to each of these charts, I have the small one minute videos that explains what it is and how it works. You can Google it or you can re reach my video. The thing that's useful about my video, if you Google it, um, you'll just get a paragraph telling you what it is. In my videos, I actually chart it and I show when it was at extremes and whether it worked or not. So you can say, oh, this is an indicator that's useful empirically or not useful, not some paragraph about how it should theoretically work. Who, who cares? Does it work or doesn't it work? And what percentage of the time does it and doesn't it? Now, the skew is people buying tail risk. So they were buying huge tail risk uh, up to the peak, and now that's come down. Um, this, you know, th as you can see, it can come down a lot more in extreme cases, or it can, let's, let's move this out five years, so you can see that it can actually stay elevated. So if the market stayed somewhat elevated, uh, meaning you had crashes and rallies under the surface, but the market itself. So if you look at this 2016 to 2018 year and a half period, you know, you had this period where it was spiking up, you know, the market kept rallying, people kept buying tail risk and it kept expiring worthless and they kept buying tail risk and it kept expiring worthless. So we might be in that type of environment and that type of environment usually precedes a period like this, like we had in 2019 where um, no one was buying the tail risk and then it spiked up. No one was buying it after a crash and then you get this elevated period for a long period of time. So we could go down and that could be more pain for the market or it could stay elevated and, and do that here. The, the key takeaway this week was that a lot of these indicators were in no man's land. Now the PMO buy all, this is a really interesting indicator. When it gets down to zero, uh, it's often near an inflection and you can watch the video about this. We're at zero, but sometimes it takes a little time to build that base at the bottom. Let's see what it's done in the last two days. Um, PMO by all. Okay, so it's still just at zero here. I think it's going to take a little bit more, which means, like I said, the pain trade a little bit more. Uh, generally, and because the S&P is so heavily tech-weighted, it would be reflected in the indices in the short term until those weights start to change. So, um, so that's a good indicator. There's also a PMO by SPX, which exclusively hones in on the S&P 500. Uh, and that one, as you can see, sometimes it inflects down here in the mid-teens, but it could also go into the single digits. So, you know, it's at 18, it's closer to the bottom than to the top in terms of extremes, but you know, we, you know, it's hard to say whether it's gonna bottom here or a little more pain. My bet is the pain trade is a little bit lower, uh, particularly for tech. Uh, bullish percent S&P 500, those are just uh, the percentage of S&P 500 stocks on what they call a point and figure buy signal. I'm not a point and figure guy, but I do find that this is useful at extremes and when fundamentals don't really matter because volatility is high and emotions playing the game. So again, you know, could it go down to one or 11? Sure, but it could also bounce, you know, here at 50 coming out of big corrections. 
it bounced off of 50 so we're at 60 it's it's again no man's land that's why the signals are mixed and to ben's point um you know we're not at an extreme enough on any of these signals to you know pound the table buy or pound the table get short um so when we were pounding the table that apple and um uh fang and zoom were a little bit overdone last week uh that was pound the table extremes this is now we're in no man's land that we've taken a little bit, bit of that froth off um the McClellan summation, let's take a look at where NASI is. Okay, so again, it can bounce off these levels for sure, but you could also get to extreme levels. But usually coming out of big bases, you're gonna bounce at, at, at mid levels. We're negative 100, you know, negative 200 in this range. So again, we're kinda, we're, we're, we're there, but it's not a pound the table. That's why I love individual stocks because I can tell when an individual stock is pound the table at an extreme and to get exposure and um, um, and that's that. So uh, do check into those five videos. I think you can find those helpful. They're a handful that I look at in periods like this. Uh, you know, there are 400 some odd uh, different indicators. And then our normal that we cover. Now, this one with bullish percent AAII, and I think uh, Ben referenced it in his question, yeah, this is down to 23%. Bearishness is at 48%. Um, you know, this is historically where you want to be buying, you know, in the low 20s uh, on the bullish side and in the high 40s to low 50s on the bearish side, that's usually near an inflection because they're pessimistic. Um, but we have enough counterbalancing indicators that are not clear that we have to be nuanced. So the fear and greed at this point was at 66. Uh, it's probably in that range today. I didn't check it um now the national association of active investment managers was 95 let's see what's happened in the last couple of days okay so it has plummeted to 53 so it's cut in half and again this is the range where it can bounce which is usually what happens after a huge plummet like we've had it's not going to go back down to another plummet it's usually going to bounce up here so we're getting closer so yes and that's why we're buyers of stocks that were all stocks that were at extremes we're not you know buy the stock market short the stock market that's like you know that's a really tough game some people can do that it's it's when these things are getting close there are stocks that are already there that are turning and that's where you can make your money like we saw banks up today with everything else down that was really very interesting to see and and very positive so and that's reflected again you know in this wells fargo most hated to most loved uh, uh growth i'm sorry uh value cyclicals to tech growth this is changing the climate is changing the grounds are shifting pay attention so um okay so our message for the week this was wednesday night uh, despite mixed signals, my net takeaway this week is that while we could bounce, the probabilities favor more work to do on the downside, particularly for overvalued so pockets of stocks we've covered in recent week's notes above. And again, you can check those recent week's notes here, the last two weeks. And you can see every note we've ever written uh, by clicking on commentary under categories. So uh, for those of you on the podcast, you're going to cut out in a few minutes. You can go to hedgefundtips.com and watch the last few minutes on the video cast, which you can find on YouTube. Just fast forward to the 60 minute mark 
and you can watch the remainder of it. Uh, the other thing that we said is, as I've repeated for the last couple of weeks, the catalyst for a change, an abrupt move of money into cyclicals will likely come from science at this point. Don't bet against science. I cannot overemphasize this point and we're gonna go into it now. And then I finally close out where there is real long-term durable value, we are buyers and we were buying things this week. So uh, uh, clients know that and uh, me members of uh, hedge fund tips know that. So uh, and for those of you who are holding the highest flyers, despite our warnings for the last two weeks, sometimes you gotta take the other side of Barry's never gonna give you up and find another guy or gal to dance with. There are many lovely candidates that are sitting on the sidelines and haven't even got out on the dance floor yet. And you know which ones we've been talking about. Okay, now, uh, AstraZeneca, this is also from Barron's, Bill Alpert, AstraZeneca's vaccine trial pause won't slow its rivals. And he goes into uh, Pfizer and Biotechni uh, and all the other players. Uh, even CNN had an, an article, Pfizer Biotechni vaccine will be ready for approval by mid-October, but there's still unknowns. And they go into some nuances here. Um, Keep in mind, uh, Scott Gottlieb, Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, uh, who everyone listens to along with Fauci is on the board of Pfizer. So that could be very, very promising. Uh, this was on, I was eating lunch today and I had Yahoo Finance on. Um, they had this great thing and I got shots with my cell phone of all the different companies and where their vaccine trials, clinical and uh, vaccine trials are. Moderna has a phase three, Pfizer has a phase two and phase three, AstraZeneca has a phase two and phase three, Johnson Johnson has a one and two, Novavax a one and two, Sanofi a one and two, Inovio, etc. Next, um, this is even more important because we, we're so fixated on the AstraZeneca drug. Well, we've got 25 vaccines in phase one, 14 in phase two, nine in phase three, and three have already been approved for early and limited use, zero have been approved for full use. So I'd imagine some of the limited ones are gonna move into fully approved, and certainly some of those nine are gonna move into limited and then fully approved very shortly, maybe by October, certainly by uh, November, etc. But I was actually astounded. I mean, I've been following this closely, but nine in phase three with three already approved, this is gonna change on the dime and you gotta be ready. So, um, and that means cyclicals in my book. Not a ton of financial information, uh, economic data this week. Um, the PPI and CPI were uh, uh, positive. It's just showing demand is coming back. The continuing and initial were uh, slightly less good than expectations. However, uh, keep in mind, August was the complete nightmare with the uh, Sunbelt um, spikes and all that stuff. So the fact that we held in line with previous prints was actually a net positive because they're all coming down. And then the economic surprise index came down just a little bit, but is trading at all-time highs. So it looks like I'm going to wrap this up in time for the podcast people and the videocast people in under 60 minutes. I want to thank you for listening this in this week. Hope you found it helpful. If you've got a question next week, email it in and uh, hopefully we can cover it on our podcast video cast uh, episode 48 and 38 next week. Same time, same place. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Stay safe, stay well, and uh, thanks for listening in.